The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, spin down, tune in, chill out, and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan, announcing show number 475 with guest James Kovacs, recorded live Monday, August 17, 2009. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who just got back from a configuration convention, Carl Franklin! Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell here with you for the next hour or so. Hey, Richard. Hello, sir. How are you? Well, it's a little bit hot here in New London. I don't mind telling you. I went to, of course, we went to Nashville a long time ago, but that's when we're recording this, and a few weeks ago anyway. And it was hot there and humid. And then I came home thinking, you know, it's going to be a little cooler up north, and it was 91. Oh, man. You're not supposed to get that hot up there. Yeah. I know. It's actually been a very mild summer up here in the northeast, but uh, apparently the rest of the country isn't so lucky. You know, other there places. You know, it's the- beautiful in British Columbia as always. Are those fires still burning? Oh yeah, we still battling forest fires. Was you know California's on fire again too? Yeah, California. We usually ship guys down to help them. Right now we can't. We're fighting our own. Ah, it's terrible. Well, anyway, let's uh, jump right into better know framework. All right. So today I'm getting back to Silverlight. Some uh, unique things in Silverlight. Did you know that Silverlight has namespace extensions? Oh, really? Which uh, Silverlight namespaces in XAML. They're XAML constructs that extend the basic XAML language features. So you got standard XAML, and then you've got Silverlight extensions to XAML. So there's a binding markup extension, which defines a property value to be a data-bound value, creating an intermediate expression object and interpreting the data context that applies to the element at runtime. So, you know, it's sort of like an object property equals and then in curly braces binding. And then you got some uh, properties there too. There's also uh, a static resource markup extension, which provides a value for any XAML property attribute by evaluating a reference to an already defined resource. 
So then you can say, you know, object property equals, and then in quotes, curly brace, static resource, and then a space, and then the key. Cool. And then that's the key for the requested resource. And then you've got the template binding markup extension, template binding, uh, which links the value of property in a control template to the value of some other exposed property on the templated control, only used within a control template definition in XAML. Trying to think of how I use that. So the remarks say, in the Silverlight XAML processor implementation, there is no backing class representation. Template binding is exclusively for use in XAML using the curly brace syntax that indicates to a XAML processor that the contents should be treated by a markup extension. Uh, it also says attempting to use a template binding outside of a control template definition in XAML result in a parser error. And there's one more that says uh, that's called the relative source markup extension which provides a means to specify the source of a binding in terms of relative relationship in the runtime object graph. So I'm not an expert in this kind of stuff, but they seem to all be related to binding in resources. Yeah, it sounds like this is a way to, to bind uh, data sets together or, uh, or other kinds of objects to XAML objects. Right. I mean, when you're on the client, you're, you're binding to, to different things than you're binding to on the server my guess. Anyway, but we'll have a Silverlight expert on perhaps sometime soon to talk about those namespace extensions. Richard, do you have an email? I do indeed. And uh, it's from Michael Wharton. And his subject line is, requires a full-time person to use Microsoft Project. What? Uh-oh. And then he goes on to say, what? 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 What kind of crap is that? <laughs> hey, Carl and Richard, love your show and have been a faithful listener ever since show 9 or 10. While talking to Nate Kahari, Richard said it takes a full-time person to use Project. I hear that often, and I cringed because it is just not true. Not My true! Not true. Microsoft Project has matured a lot since you probably used it. Microsoft has integrated Microsoft Project Professional with a project server, and this reduces the amount of time required to update and maintain project status. It takes about 10 minutes each week for team members to update the status of their projects using Project Server. Once the project information has been updated, it's a simple matter of tracking how well the project is performing. Both costs and schedules are easily reported. It's up to the project manager to make adjustments to his plan based on weekly updates. It's like all other things. If people are properly trained and the system is configured properly, then the tool, Microsoft Project, will make life easier for the project manager and to help manage his project effectively. Microsoft Project is not a tool that is installed and left for the team to run with. Unfortunately, that is what I see often, and people cry, oh, it's too hard and too time-consuming. It requires planning, governance, and training, just like many other things. When it's done properly, it's a great tool. One more thing. It won't work miracles. If a project is underfunded and has an unreasonable schedule, then Project Professional will show that, but it won't fix it. Then it's just a tool that shows what you already know. Again, thanks for your great show. Sincerely, Michael Wharton. Michael, uh, I'll send you a mug, and now I'm going to disagree with you. Well, it has been a long time. I don't know about you, but it's been a long time since I've looked at Project. Yeah, well, last time I, I've had. looked at Project probably more than that. I'll give him this key point, which is it used to be that in order to enter data into Microsoft Project, you had to have a license for Microsoft Project, and so it was very expensive to give it to all the developers, and Project Server addressed that. Mm. But he is saying an interesting thing here, the idea that developers would be entering data into project accurately and successfully. Let's mm. just ponder that for a moment. Yeah, isn't project done by used by the project manager? 
Well, it, it is ultimately for reporting, but I mean, the model here that makes it reasonable is that the team members themselves can enter the data into project. Right. And, and the data is usually completed this task, you know, how many hours left on this task, that kind of stuff. That's right. And so there is a wrestle. The problem is that everybody interprets their status differently. And so you're mm-hmm. going to always wrestle with that. Uh, in my perspective, and right, the reason I said he takes a full-time person to use project was really this acknowledgement of there needs some, this needs to be somebody who's a project manager who ultimately goes and gathers all the data to feed to project in the first place. But that is based on that old licensing model and based on the fact that consistent data across multiple people is tough. Mm. But I okay. won't disagree with the fact that project has improved. And so if you haven't completely abandoned it like most of us have, it might be worth looking at. Well, there you go. Well, there you go. And he gets a mug. I will send him a mug. And there it is. So uh, just another plug for our friends at Infusion. They're uh, hiring like mad. They're sucking up all the .NET Rocks listeners in the world. They're, they're dropping like flies, Richard. Recession? What recession? Recession, exactly. These guys uh, are in New York City. They're friends of ours. Nick Landry introduced me to Greg Brill, and uh, we're like two peas in a pod. He's like a music guy, creative guy, requires his employees to all do improvisational theater like once a month. Like they go to an improv theater and take classes. Um, so this is the kind of environment you work with. And, and they're, they have a lot of great, uh, a lot of great stuff that they're working on. Uh, Silverlight, um, touch computing, you, you know, the surface stuff, WPF, Silverlight, all sorts of hot new technologies. If you're a hotshot developer and you want to change a pace, they have offices in New York and Toronto and London and in Dubai. So interested in that? Send me an email, carl at franklins.net. And I will introduce you. And with that, Richard, let's introduce James. Uh, he's been on before. Uh, James Kovacs is an independent architect, developer, trainer, and jack-of-all-trades specializing in agile development using the .NET framework. He's absolutely passionate about helping developers create flexible software using test-driven development, unit testing, object relational mapping, dependency injection, refactoring, continuous integration, and related technologies. He blogs on CodeBetter.com as well as his own blog, which is jameskovacs.com slash blog. He writes articles for MSDN Magazine and Code Magazine and administers TeamCity.CodeBetter.com, a CI server for open source projects. He created Saki, that's P-S-A-K-E, silent P, a PowerShell-based build automation tool to save developers from XML hell. James is Microsoft MVP, solutions architect, and card-carrying member of Alt.net, a group of software professionals continually looking for more effective ways to develop applications. He is the Agile Track Chair for DevTeach, Canada's largest independent Microsoft conference, and one of the organizers for Alt.net Canada. He holds a variety of designations, including MCP, MCAD, MCSD, and MCT. He received his bachelor's degree from the University of Toronto and his master's from Harvard University. Welcome back, James. Well, thank you ha- for having me again, guys. Lots of great feedback on both your, your .NET Rocks uh, appearance and your DNR TV shows. Great stuff. Well, thank you very very much. I uh, haven't quite hit the levels of uh, Mr. Neward and Mr. Forte in appearances, <laughs> but hopefully we can overcome that. They're in a class by <laughs> themselves, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we they just call up and say, "I'm bored. I want to be on .NET Rocks." And, we, yeah. <laughs> and since they know where all the skeletons are buried, we have to say yes. <laughs> Do you have like reserved chairs for them in the studio? Uh, no, I don't think. Well, Ted's been here, and I don't think Forte's ever been to the studio. Has he? No, you usually go to him. Actually, 
Yeah, that's right. Usually it's in a pizza parlor or something in New York. So, <laughs> so what's on your mind, James? Well, lately I've been thinking a lot about just how to improve development, how to keep uh, development code base much more flexible, and really incorporating the ideas of convention over configuration that have been slowly seeping into the .NET community and how the landscape of micro, the Microsoft community is changing over time. Yeah. Uh, like many years ago, when the .NET first came out, a lot of heritage from Java, both development camps were very, very heavy in XML. Uh, you configured everything. Right. You, you, wanted, uh, you wanted to connect up a bunch of objects, you wrote some code. You wanted to, if you wanted to wire things together, if you were using an IOC container, historically IOCs were very XML heavy. You said exactly, okay, this is the interface that I have, and if you get asked for this interface, here's the concrete type to supply. And it was... It took a lot of effort to make sure all your ducks were in a row and everything worked properly together. Right. And then there was this little thing that came, a little language that came onto the scene called Ruby, and specifically Ruby on Rails, where they went very, very heavily convention-based. And the difference is they, they would implement default configurations and say, this is the way it's doing, it's by default, but if you want to change things, that's a different story. Exactly. They're, they had very sensible defaults, which is something that's been lacking in many parts of the .NET framework for a long time. Not just the .NET framework, but Windows. I mean, Windows applications written by Microsoft and other. I find. Oh, absolutely. Too many choices. And it hasn't just been Microsoft. It's been a lot of different development communities. Have very, very As I said, Java was this way. Uh, there's certain um, like, uh, enterprise Java beans, Spring. They are all very XML-heavy. And if you don't get all of your configuration just right, the application doesn't run. Yeah. Historically, with IOCs, that's been true as well. But many IOCs, like Structure Map and Castle Windsor and others, have moved much more over to the option of a convention-based approach, yeah. where you just place things in the appropriate namespaces and magic happens. Uh, you can override it, but by default, things get registered in the container properly. Right. And this allows for a lot more flexibility in your development. Uh, you just don't have to worry about it. You don't have to handhold the compiler and the development environment through a lot of micro decisions that don't add value to your project. No, they just slow you down, especially when you're developing. Um, and we're already seeing this from Microsoft. If you look at the ASP.NET MVC framework, taking it, for example, controllers. If you have a path, server slash home, by default, ASP.NET MVC will look for a class called home controller. Yeah. If you say slash about, it'll look for the about controller. So already there's a convention there. You don't right. have to... If Microsoft had written this five years ago, we would have seen a big gory XML file that had all the possible paths for the website right. and which classes service those paths. Right. So we're already seeing parts of this baked in. You know, this idea has had ripples through the software community and the development community. Uh, just some of the more elegant user interfaces that I've seen, the iPhone is for one, is all about that. It's all about, you know, what, not just convention for, uh, you know, data and things like that, because that's stuff you never see, but convention for usability. 
You know what I'm saying? Like that? I mean, it, it seems like just a natural way to design software so that it's more usable as to, you know, instead of giving the user umpteen million options and buttons to click through, there's just, you know, the thing that you would expect it to do, it just does. The principle of least surprise. Yeah. It's great. <laughs> it's a great principle, and we don't use that enough. We are very... We're very, ourselves, Microsoft and others are very much, but what if someone wants to tweak this? Oh, what exactly. if they want to do something different? It, and it's not about, sometimes you want to shut off those options because they're just not worth developing. They're just buttons and knobs that confuse people. But even if you do need those buttons and knobs in there, apply some sensible defaults. Do the, the expected thing out of the box so that you don't have to rely on heavy-duty configuration. Right. Uh, things like classically web services, once again, require a lot of configuration. Rest a lot simpler because it doesn't have the WSDL files. It doesn't have the XSDs. Uh, it's all implied, which has its own problems that if things change, you don't have as good checking that something has gone wrong. Yeah. But you do get the ability to very quickly develop because you're not having to handhold the development environment through all of these decisions that don't add value. Well, and to be fair, you know, you're, you're com- comparing uh, SOAP and REST is a little bit unfair because, you know, SOAP is really meant to talk to, to have this interoperability layer between existing machines that are all configuration thick. You know what I mean? Whereas REST yeah. says, all right, you know, you come to us. Here's our convention. If you on your platform want to talk to our server, you need some sort of REST client. And that's it. I mean, you don't get, and plus you don't get all the other baked-in features that SOAP has, you know, tokens. Oh, absolutely. And, and it, it's not, a lot of people make the SOAP REST debate an either-or decision. Yeah. They both serve their purposes. Um, you're right that SOAP, especially with the WS Star protocols, has a whole bunch of functionality on top. My point is that in a lot of situations, bringing in WS Star and, and WSDL and SOAP is way too heavyweight. You can yeah. do things much more efficiently using convention-based approaches and rest. And if you're, if you're, you know, the the actors in your your communication are all able to do rest, you know, and if they don't need any of those other features. Well, isn't this whole movement towards convention over configuration just an idea of lightening up the weight, giving an alternative when those things aren't as critical? When those things aren't as critical, but even if in soap, I would like to see some. Default configuration, things that just mm. kind of works out of the box, yeah. that we don't have to go through so much uh, discovery and plumbing to get simple things working. I remember back mm. in the day, remember when we first all started using VB6, mm. and it was just such a protective environment. You'd throw it open, new form, boom, you just start creating stuff, right. and you'd have a ru- running application very, very quickly. Right. We've moved away from that. Yeah, uh, you way. have to often do very complex, convoluted things to get even a simple application up and running. Isn't a lot of that because what you can do with a with Visual Studio now, as opposed to VB6, is just so much more vast that there's so many ways you can take an application. That's part of it, and the lack of sensible defaults. Uh, so another area that I'm really looking looking into, I'm doing a web client right now for one of my clients. And we're using ASP.NET MVC. Uh, we're doing a lot of jQuery, which I'm loving. 
We've got and Hibernate in the back end, Castle Windsor. Uh, we, we've got MVC Contrib, which is a lovely little framework that uh, Jeffrey Palermo and some other folks have put together to extend what ASP.NET MVC provides into the box. We've got all these little parts playing together. And because we're using convention-based approaches in a lot of cases, we save ourselves from having micro to make a lot of micro decisions. So things like I need a new control, uh, a new ASP.NET controller. We just create the controller, declare the appropriate parameters in its constructor, and it gets all of those because all of those have been registered in the IOC in the inversion of control container by default using the conventions that we've established on our project. Now, a lot of people think about conventions as, okay, this is something like Rails. We need to get together this big, massive effort where we as a community are going to figure out what the conventions are. What I've seen that's very effective and lightweight is you can do it on your own project, and a lot of the decisions you make are project-specific, mm-hmm. and that's okay. Right, yeah, that's right. I mean, what to call a data file, you know, where where is it going to be? Yeah, those those kinds of things. You shouldn't allow the user to change them. I mean, you know, there's obviously things that that need to be tweaked, but um, so are, are you of the... Are you of the mindset that you shouldn't provide a configuration file at all, or, or there should be a configuration file which you should read from, but the, but it's all about sensible defaults? I like. I think configuration files are a necessary evil. You're going to need to stick your database connection string somewhere. There are certain things that you cannot do by, that cannot you cannot do sensibly by convention. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, configuration files get away from this whole, I need to change the database and I don't want to recompile. Right. Uh, yes. One problem that I've seen happen uh, in .NET development is a convolution of developer configuration and end-user or administrator configuration. Why do we have our connection strings in webconfig along with what namespaces are registered. Right. Yeah, we need the connection strings there for the ops, but the namespaces, it's crazy. Why are they there? Yeah, if they accidentally put in an extra dot in a namespace or decide to fix a spelling error, what they see as a spelling error in a namespace, all of a sudden, your ASPX files don't compile anymore. Right. Like there's, and the same thing with IOC configuration. We had a lot of times in the early days that was put into a config section in the web config file. And it was editable. So you wanted to edit the connection string to a remote web service. Well, you had to wade through a 10,000 lines of XML trying to find the little part that you need to tweak in. Mm-hmm. And so seeing, I'd like, I'm trying to do it myself, and I'd like to see Microsoft try to move that way is to have the configuration that really should be baked in. There's really no reason. If you're going to be changing namespaces, if you're going to be changing how your... I've got an an iCredit card validator, and it's implemented by some service. Chances are you're going to have to do a lot more testing than simply flipping over to a new implementation because you changed credit card provider, something like that. It's not something that is configurable by the IT administrator in any reasonable sense of the word. If that you need to make those kind of changes, you might as well have a light enough deployment process that you can just redeploy the application after making those changes. Right, yeah. 
So I'd like to see those separated out. A lot of the thinking that I'm doing around convention over configuration is it's partially driven by what some I've seen in the and the Ruby community, but a lot of it is actually being driven by jQuery. Uh, getting back into, I did, I've done a lot of web apps in my time. Uh, just this recent last year or so, I've had the opportunity to get, to get into jQuery and just some of the ideas that John Ratzik and team are bringing to the table, and it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, you see a lot of functional style programming in jQuery. So there's there's the classic way of programming the web. You need to hook up a JavaScript event, and you can use jQuery to do that. So you can say you can create a button element on the page, and then you can supply a click handler and go through it that way. One thing that jQuery does that's incredibly powerful is this notion of selectors. You can very easily select things on a page. So you can say, I want all buttons. And then in your Java, so you've got a little snippet of JavaScript, say, I want all buttons, now apply this particular CSS class to it. Uh, do it only when you roll over it. And you can actually implement your dynamic behavior in separate JavaScript files. So your HTML is very structure-oriented. It's the, what your page, uh, the major elements of your page. This is a heading. This is a set of paragraphs. This part is my blog post, that type of thing. And then you can have your behavior, what happens when you click on the add new blog post and things like that in a completely separate file. Not only does it make it more testable, but it allows you to apply sensible defaults and sensible conventions throughout your entire application. So one of the things that I, I showed, I'm writing a brown fruit field series called Extreme ASP.NET Makeover for MSDN Magazine. I showed some jQuery UI where you could actually default the buttons. If you try to navigate off a page, it brings up a, you've got outstanding edits. And so rather than manually wiring up every single button and every single anchor tag to navigate to forward to the same click handler, I was able to, with jQuery, say, okay, select all of them, select all of those clickable elements, and here's the behavior I want you to do. Okay. Also in a, the current project I'm working on, uh, what, very common thing, we've got a filed upload dialog, and we want the submit button disabled if there's no file selected. So we've got a default rule, essentially, written in jQuery, where we just say, find all, if there's an input box on the page, find all submit buttons and disable them until there's something, until it's no longer empty. And that, and that accelerates development to an unbelievable degree, because you've made a decision as a team, and now anytime you have those elements on your page, that functionality just appears. You don't have to worry about configuring it. You don't have to worry about, is it consistent across the application? It's consistent because you've applied these rules. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik, without whom this show would not exist. No doubt, you bump into testing tasks now and then in your work. And we can bet writing functional tests is not your favorite thing. It's difficult. It takes ages and the results could be dubious. Well. Get ready to start liking it thanks to Telerik. With the just-launched Web AII testing framework, building web automation tests is a breeze. Enjoy code-based automation of advanced ASP.NET AJAX and Silverlight apps. 
Write a single test and have it executed against multiple browsers at once. Benefit from rich API link support, integration with Visual Studio unit testing, NUnit, XUnit, and MBUnit, not to mention the free wrappers for Telerik RAD controls for ASP.NET AJAX and Silverlight that ship with Telerik's new testing tool. Surely one of its best features, Web AII Testing Framework, which is developed by Art of Test, is absolutely free. If you're already hooked on Web AII Testing Framework, you can start using it right away. Go to Telerik.com for more info, and hey, make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Well, that just sounds like a good feature to me. Is it is it because otherwise you would have you would have to specify specific pieces of data? Well, and that's it. It's like as developers, we tend to perform these repetitive tasks over and over and over again. It's like create a new web page. Okay, we've got some input validation that we have to do. Hook everything up. Hook up your validators. What if we just had a convention where you'd just say, "I've got an input box." It's got a CSS class of phone. That means it's a phone number. So automatically, the phone number validator gets hooked up to it. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. It's incredible. Once As you start default, thinking right. in this way, it becomes increasingly, it just, your development accelerates because you just start making right. these decisions once and they start right. rippling through your entire application. Right. I see. Although, like you said, uh, a lot of these things are specific to a given project. So you don't not necessarily going to carry them from project to project. It's got to be some kind of decision making process. This is sort of a a pre work thing before we get rolling in the project. We start setting up these conventions. I wouldn't say it's pre. I, I'd say, as you know, I'm much more of an agile mindset. So you make these decisions as you go along, but you make them once. Right. So you kind of the team I'm on. We're in a war room. We've got a half dozen people sitting there, and so it's you come up to one of these decisions and you kind of just say hey, has anybody encountered this before? You get maybe two or three interested people around a monitor. You spend five minutes. You establish the convention. Uh, you let everybody else know, and you just keep merrily rolling along. So some of them you can – it takes a bit of initial uh, plumbing work to get going, right. mm-hmm. uh, to get your IOC configured properly with the conventions that you want to use, uh, to establish some basic jQuery rules or validators that you might want to use throughout the application. But for the most part, you can do it as you roll along. And so, and rather than whenever you come up to the situation where it's like, okay, I have to manually wire this up yet again, right. ask yourself, is there a way that I can do it automatically? Yeah. Because each of these conventions are going to be implemented differently. Yes. I mean, it's not like the it's not like there's a list of conventions you can look at unless you make a document like that. Well, and it also almost sounds like you're creating a sort of a DSL in a way. Yes, uh, you're basically like uh, having done a lot of a lot of jQuery lately. It's really it's a, you're creating a DSL in the form of CSS classes. Often that okay, if you if you see this CSS class, that means it's a phone number, or that means it's a postal code. Mm. And yes, you could write a generic framework that would handle international phone numbers and different styles of postal codes. But for the most, it's so easy to do that doing one-offs is often better bang for the buck mm-hmm. and learning how to, how to do these things. Uh, and I'm seeing a lot of interplay with some of these convention-based approaches. And what we're seeing in the functional languages like F-sharp, uh, in things like Link, uh, spending a lot more time telling 
the development environment what I want rather than how I want it. Hmm. Yeah. So you spend a lot of a lot of time saying, I want a collection. I want a collection of all customers. Now I want to filter that mm. by customers that have updated their profiles in the last six weeks. Right. As opposed to worrying about the nitty-gritty of right. how do I query this thing out of the database. Right. So I'm seeing that with, with Link, with functional programming, being able to compose different functions together. And establishing, and like as I said, jQuery has this sort of functional aspect that you can program it in a very imperative way, but you can then take it, and it's much more effective if you take it as much more of a functional language, which JavaScript originally was, oddly enough. It was actually going to be a variant of Scheme, of all things. It was called LiveScript. Uh, And it got the name JavaScript because... uh, because Java got Netscape cool. Corporation saw that Java was popular. Yeah. As you know, there's no relationship between Java and JavaScript. They both have curly braces. Yeah. <laughs> they got, both got... The, and the funny thing is, LiveScript originally didn't have semicolons. Right. It, it was very much... It was a functional style language uh, with aspects of prototypes. And if you... It's very good at being able to pass functions around, compose functions... I have this notion of, it was a big feature that we got uh, lambdas in C-sharp 3. Mm. But we've all been using JavaScript for over 10 years now, 10, 15 years now, and it's had lambdas from day one. We just never quite, at least I never quite realized it. I still don't realize it. What are you talking about? (laughs) So the, when you say function, in JavaScript, you're actually creating a lambda. You're cre- creating an anonymous delegate. You can create anonymous functions in JavaScript right. and pass them around as first-class things. Yeah, that's true. So if you just say function without a name, just function, paren, paren, and then a function body, that's a lambda. You can pass it to another function. That function can execute it. It can pass it arguments. It can manipulate it. If you look at JavaScript as much more of a functional language, we're not using it, for the most part, as a functional language. We're using it as an imperative language. And we lose a lot of the power of JavaScript. If you look at how a lot of jQuery has been implemented, they're using a lot of the functional aspects of it. Uh, And it becomes a much more pleasant language to work with. And just some of the amazing things that you can do. All right, I buy that. It's an interesting way of looking at it. I really thought it was, uh, you know, more of the weakness of JavaScript, of its lack of enforcement, not really a feature per se. It's amazingly powerful language. Uh, one thing that I've been, we're, right now, uh, Microsoft is doing it, uh, the Firefox team uh, with the latest version, uh, th- Firefox 3.5 released TraceMonkey, which is a highly optimized JavaScript compiler. Uh, JavaScript runtime, we've got V8 in Chrome. All of these browsers, major browsers, have very optimized, very powerful JavaScript engines built into them. And what you can do is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, one of the most, most interesting sites to see what's going to be pop well, is popular today, but is going to be more probable to see in the future, is chromeexperiments.com. This is a site by Google that showcases their V8 engine. So if you go there, um, you can run it in any browser, works best in 
in Google Chrome because uh, it was optimized for that. But they do mind-blowing things. Uh, they do visualizations. They do, there's this really funky one where it's a set of ball bearings in probably a 15 by 15 grid. Depth and the ball bearings field. all move and reflect off of each other. And it's this really amazing visualization. And then you kind of look at it and it's like, oh, that's all done in JavaScript. Wow. I'm looking at it now. Oh, and I love the line, not your mother's JavaScript. So if you use an older browser against this, it's going to just churn because the JavaScript engine isn't optimized enough to be able to handle this level of calculation. Um, so IE, IE8, uh, latest version Opera, Chrome. I'm using a MacBook Pro with Safari, and yep. I'm getting about two frames a second. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you're going to get. If you use a browser that has a more updated JavaScript engine, you actually get very smooth performance. Uh, it, it's just, it just goes to show you where we're going. Like, there's been a lot of investment in, in Silverlight and in Flash. And I lo really like Silverlight and what it can do. But at the same time, we're not needing... This is showing that we might not need to lean on it as heavily as some of these features are built in. Once HTML5 comes down the pipe, once we have more much more highly optimized JavaScript engines, once we have the Canvas element, it just opens up the, a wealth of possibilities of doing things that were only possible in something like Flash or Silverlight in plain old JavaScript and HTML. Uh, it's, it's really, yeah, quite impressive. Do you think that, it, I, I mean, I struggle with how important HTML5 is really going to be, other than that at least we've waited long enough that we have a very different view on what we want the markup language to be now. Uh, I think that it's going, it's going to be a long time before it's broadly supported. But what we will see is, and there's a lot of infighting uh, in terms of certain aspects. I know there's a big fight around whether codecs are going to be packaged, uh, because that was some of the big things uh, with HTML5 is the notion of having audio and video elements as first-class markup. They're not going to be like object tags with GUIDs on them that launch external uh, external viewers like Silverlight and, and Flash, but they're going to be first-class elements. Uh, so that's coming. But things like the Canvas element, there are browsers that are already supporting it. So I think what, what's going to happen is, is the more popular elements of HTML5, they're available today, as long as you're running a more recent browser. Um, I know... Uh, Firefox has good support for the Canvas element, as does Chrome and Safari. I don't think Internet Explorer has implemented it yet. Uh, but if you're willing to deal with uh, differences in browsers, you can give different experiences depending on the browser coming in. And Internet Explorer has done this for years, where it kind of gives a down-level version for Firefox or, or other browsers. Sorry, I just got lost in an orange tunnel. <laughs> <laughs> and to a certain extent with the canvas element especially that might flip where we, we give the give a different view to the internet explorer users because they don't support canvas yet but provide a, a richer experience to other browsers uh, so the browser space is, is looking fairly interesting um, it's going to be a while i it's going to be years before HTML5 is officially ratified. But I think like a lot of specs, the best parts of them will be incorporated early into the browsers that are available today. 
Wasn't one of the problems that we had when JavaScript was in its prime the uh, the speed at which data was downloaded? So it would take general and, – and also just you know the time it takes to get uh, a lot of JavaScript constructs and things initialized. Um, the you, you know I know of a of a and I've said this before on the show I know of a project that was totally done in JavaScript and it was a application service provider and they they had to scrap it because it was taking five minutes to load. Ouch! But, and this was back in oh I don't know ninety eight ninety nine you know so the 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 machines of the day weren't like they are today. But, mm-hmm. you know, they were close. We've got a lot more power on our desktops, and it's like anything. You you might want to write something, like years ago, nobody thought it was possible to write something like Office in JavaScript. Yeah. But we've got that today. It's not as full-fledged feature-wise as a full desktop version of Office, but it does a lot of the common things that people need it to do. Right. And I think that, like any application, you have to think, does it make sense to write this in JavaScript? Does it make sense to write it as a web app? Does Silverlight make more sense? Does it make more sense as a desktop app, as a click once? There's all these different options that you have. So it's not just a JavaScript's going to replace everything. It's going to be one potential avenue for it. Now, that said, there are a number of technologies that are available in JavaScript that do speed things up. Uh, one of them is just the much faster engines that are available in modern browsers, Internet Explorer included. The IE8 JavaScript engine is so much faster than IE6 and 7. Yeah. Now, the other portion of it is just the time to download these things. More and more sites are doing JavaScript and CSS compression now. And Really what that does is, as part of your build process, I believe Scott Hanselman has a blog post on actually incorporating it as just a HTTP module, where dynamically he streams the compressed JavaScript. So what you can actually do is uh, take either one or more JavaScript files, you strip out all of the comments, all of the extraneous white space, you can even concatenate them together so you can download ten, what would have been 10 JavaScript files in development as one single large JavaScript file. These things are cached by the browsers. Uh, people are putting them onto uh, CDNs, content delivery networks, so that if you're using jQuery and jQuery UI, you can get them from a CDN server that is very closely located to you rather than wherever the site is. And it's taking bandwidth off of the original website. So there's a lot of different possibilities for making websites faster and having this rich delivery mechanism and and these rich experiences using JavaScript and HTML. So um, getting back to the convention over configuration thing for a minute, um, some products that uh, that we're using out there, people are using that use this. You could, I, I think Spring has an MVC framework that uses this. Of course, Ruby on Rails you mentioned. Yes. What are some of the other uh, applications out there that 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 are that are noticeably convention over configuration? Right. Uh, I haven't actually taken a look at Spring in a while, so I can't. I'm not sure. I'll take your word for it that Spring's got it. Uh, but yes, Ruby on Rails has a lot of convention baked in. Um, other ones, 
a lot of the frameworks have support for it. Uh, so another good example is Fluent and Hibernate. So okay. Fluent and Hibernate allows you to it, it provides you a different way of configuring in Hibernate than your typical HTML mapping files and yeah. configuration files. Uh, you can actually do it in code. Because the Hibernate project itself was really heavy configuration, wasn't it? Very heavy configuration, that's right. And so you can, there's a few different flavors that you can go with Fluent and Hibernate. You can go the auto-mapping route, where assuming you abide by the, either the built-in conventions or the ones that you define yourself, it's fairly easy. You just derive from iConvention or one of the other derived types and you override two methods. Uh, you can supply your own conventions very easily for what do you name your tables, what are your foreign keys named, uh, what happens if you delete a customer, do all of their orders get deleted or not, those types of conventions. Like what are your, yeah. what are your cascade rules? How do you handle cascades and updates? Uh, so you can either use the, the built-in ones, but if you are doing the auto mappings, everything just works. Right. Uh, you don't need to supply any code-based configuration or uh, XML-based configuration, assuming that your database and types all matched up. So, for example, um, if you've got a class customer, it maps to a table called customer. Right. If you've got an order, et cetera. And then the column names match up as well. You can also go another route, which is to provide uh, mapping files in code. And this is another example where we used to bake them into XML files, and they tended to be very nasty and gory. And there was no reason that anybody would ever want to change them. If someone changed them, it was often a mistake. If you're making those low-level changes to those XML files, chances are you want to recompile the code and test it anyways before you actually you don't want to just change it on the fly. So the other yeah. way of going is to provide minimal mapping files, which just specify these are the differences here, here are the ma major pieces of it. But then you can supply conventions for how do I name my foreign keys, how do I name my tables, pluralization rules, things like that. So Fluent and Hibernate is a great example of somewhere where we can see a lot of uh, conventions it put in place. Uh, you do get some of it out of the box, but not necessarily everything. Hmm. Uh, other places that you see conventions, uh, structure map and Windsor, both IO, popular IOC containers, yep. very easy to establish conventions. Uh, I think Jeremy Miller, the author of StructureMap, blazed the way of moving away from XML configuration, and he's had a lot of good thoughts around convention over configuration, of being able to just say, hey, here's an assembly, go register all the types, and for, if you see... Uh, I, uh, if you see a customer repository, register it in the container as an iCustomer repository. Right. If you see a credit card service, register it as an iCredit card service. Uh, things that you would spend a lot of time in the XML spelling out, and if you ever got a spe spelling error in it, the application wouldn't run. Very, very convention-based. Well, let's give some more examples of, of, uh, of this that we can do in our own applications, not necessarily with the tools that we use, but... Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, things things that you can do in your own applications. Uh, finding uh, Jeremy once again has done a lot of work in Storyteller, where he is using conventions to wire up things like event handlers. So having a way of specifying things once and then having it happen throughout the application. Right, just like we were talking about before, when you have a uh, when you have mappings that are that are automatic. 
Yeah, other places that you can do it, if you're doing a web app, look at CSS, Cascading Style Sheets. Mm. You can, it's part of the designer community that there's a lot of conventions in Cascading Style Sheets. Uh, the fact that you can define a class. So I've defined what a heading looks like. You mm. define it once in the CSS. Yeah. And now anytime that you see an H1 in your markup, it gets a certain style with the character spacing and all of these other features. You can already see some of these ideas in web development. And looking at uh, at XAML, at WPF, you can do similar things. You were, at XAML tends, and WPF tend to be at a very low level right now where you are wiring up, manually wiring up event handlers, uh, manually, there's a lot of styling that is possible with WPF, myself and others. Just, we don't tend to do it right now, but I think that's a very rich avenue of investigation uh, of being able to establish conventions in your WPF applications where you can, in code, hook up the various the various handlers and elements so that you, you do it once rather than again and again and again. Looking very much at ways to say things once and have the right thing happen rather than having to manually right. go ahead and make modifications. Remember to make the same modifications every time you create a new page, a new layout, modify a page. Uh, and it doesn't matter what you're working in, whether you're working in HTML, in XAML, in a WinForms app, you can apply these ideas, uh, these sort of functional convention-based ideas to simplify your coding so that the right things happen. How testable are conventions? Uh, you know, how do you enforce them, make sure everyone's using them correctly? Good question. So one of the nice things about, about conventions is you can test the convention itself. So, uh, for example, you can uh, create a, a, ver a common thing to do with jQuery and JavaScript is you can create a dummy HTML file that just has the very minimal element. So you want to see, I was testing, wanted to test whether when you have an input text box and a submit button, whether the submit button was disabled if it was empty. And so you, rather right. than having the entire web page, you have a simple HTML page with just those required elements and the script involved. And then you can use a framework like QUnit, which is a JavaScript web testing framework, to just query, is this button disabled? Once you've tested that convention and you're assured that the convention works properly, you can now use that convention throughout your application and have a great deal of confidence that it's going to work wherever you place it. If you ever discover a place that it doesn't work, well, then you can investigate why, put in some additional checks and conditions. But it reduces your t overall testing effort, effort because you're testing co the convention rather than every instance of the usage of that convention. Yeah. So it, it in effect, it, it makes your applications more testable. Well, and in one of these one of your conventions or sets of conventions can be around doing testing anyway. Right? I mean, this yep. is a meta level of convention, but certainly creating conventions around testing requirements for forms and so forth uh, got, has got to help your project. Well, there's other conventions that you can... So if you've got these conventions in place, uh, another convention-based approach that I haven't talked about is AutoMapper by Jimmy Bogart. And what that does is it maps from domain objects, things like your customer, to a view model so or a DTO. 
Uh, and the convention he has there is that the property names match. Right. Uh, and so you just, what you can do with one of the nice things, and why I bring it up in testability, is you can say AutoMapper configure for the, this pair of things between customer and customer view model. And then you can go to the AutoMapper and say, verify your configuration. And it will go through and inter- make sure it is internally consistent and that you're not missing any, any property matches. So by using these conventions, you, it allows you to test the convention. You can write little tests to see if they're, uh, like, walk through all of your classes looking for anything in the data namespace that doesn't have a particular convention applied to it. So you can actually write tests at a meta level to see whether things are, whether the conventions are being applied appropriately. Right. I'm, I think we're getting low on time here, James. So have we missed something around uh, convention versus configuration? Uh, really, it's a matter of raising awareness, of getting people to just try it out, see how it can facilitate your development, uh, how it can accelerate it by removing a lot of micro decisions that don't add value and making the decision once so that it's applied to create your code base. Uh, it. It surprised me how much it benefited my development uh, in terms of making the code cleaner, speeding it up, and making it a lot more fun. It, it seems like it clears up your thinking process. You're not, you're not thinking about plumbing. You're only thinking about the, the real problem. That's right. And you still do think about plumbing, but it's to solve a specific problem. And then once right. that problem, that plumbing problem is solved, it's encapsulated in a convention, and now it's this reusable little chunk that gets applied wherever you need it. Do you think we're going to get some tooling around this that's going to make it easier to, to approach code that way? Uh, some tooling could help, but a lot of it is a mindset shift, uh, uh, very much like functional programming. I don't claim to be an expert on functional programming, but I see how just the notion of thinking about functions as a first-class citizen changes the way you approach code. And the same thing with conventions. If you're thinking about conventions, how can I encapsulate this into a convention? Is there a way that I can have this applied by default? It changes the way that you approach your code. And what are the – I think that's the – that's what's going to make people, you know, the software really good, I think, is – what are these conventions that we're going to use? I mean, they ultimately come down to domain expertise, I think. Yeah, domain expertise. And I think what's going to happen is as more people start thinking about these things, like Fluent and Hibernate, it has a lot of default conventions. You can override them, but it's got default configure conventions built in. And I think we're going to see that in other places where we're going to have things like validation frameworks with a set of default conventions. Uh, we're going to see more in terms of right now with Windsor and with Structure Map, and you can even do this with Unity, you can establish your own conventions. Sometimes it requires a little reflective kung fu to make it work, but it's actually a lot easier, and you do it once rather than having to do it a lot of different times. You see these conventions, it's possible to establish the conventions, but there's really nothing baked in. And I think that with IOCs, and these other tools will see conventions emerge that will be used by the by the industry. Uh, things like ASP.NET MVC, right? Home maps to home controller. That's a convention. You can change it if you want to weld yourself into the ASP.NET MVC pipeline, but there's no need to. That's a well-established convention, and I think we're going to see more of those come forward. 
Uh, any last-minute things you want to throw out there, James, before we wrap it up? No, I, I think that's good for me. I just wanted to bring awareness to and get people thinking about sort of different ways of, of developing. Yeah. And uh, we'll be watching your blog for some more examples of that. And, and of course, uh, there's a lot of people doing it out there. So get out and check out what everybody else is doing. Until next time, this is Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm